The eighth property of Holy Scripture is its efficacy, on account of which power is attributed unto it, by which it is called able and is said to work effectually. For this reason, it is compared to various things that excel in efficacy. For example, water, fire, a hammer, a two-edged sword, and a sharp, double-edged sword. That definition of the words efficacy was written in 1682 by the Dutch Reformed scholastic theologian Petrus van Maastricht and serve, I think, as the clearest and most precise definition of the efficacy of Scripture that I have found. What is meant by efficacy in regard to the Scriptures? Simply, it means this, the Word has power. It has an active energy, an innate ability to work and to accomplish God's ends in the world. The doctrine of efficacy declares positively that God's word does work and negatively that it does not and cannot fail. Not only is failure impossible for God's word in actuality, it is also impossible for God's word in theory. God's word cannot fail. It has efficacy. It is efficacious. It is a powerful word. It is a working word. All that it is intended to do, it will do. And so this doctrine takes center stage for Isaiah as he continues to declare the free offer of grace here in Isaiah chapter 55. He has declared that those who have no money can come and take freely of the grace that Yahweh offers. And likewise, those that do have money are told that your money is no good here. You have tried in vain a thousand ways to quench the thirst of your soul and satisfy the hunger of your heart. And every one of those thousand ways has failed. So God says that true water, true wine, true milk, true bread are available freely. No works required, no money needed, simply come to the table of God's grace. So the question that Isaiah now intends to answer is this, how does the free mercy and compassion of God come to those who would receive it? To follow the imagery of the feast meal laid before us in the opening verses of chapter 55, what is the table upon which the feast of free grace is offered? It is the effective, efficacious, powerful work of the word. So then it is to Isaiah's doctrine of efficacy that we will devote our attention to for the next few moments. Let's begin by considering the imagery of efficacy. The imagery that Isaiah puts forth in verse 10 is compelling. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. 
This imagery is compelling, and had I preached this passage just a few weeks ago, I would have offered a thorough description of winter snow and summer rain in the Rocky Mountains where I grew up. Now, two weeks on, I don't have to. We know what happens when rain and snow fall here in Los Angeles. What a, what, let me just say as a side note here, the providence of God is just, God has a sense of humor that we would be going through this passage just a few weeks after we experience all of this rain and this snow. I remember just, just a couple of weeks ago as I was driving down the 118 on a Thursday, uh, heading west towards Simi Valley and seeing the lush green hillsides kind of on the north side on your right as you're driving uh, west on the 118. Green hillsides capped with just a little bit of snow. The bright colors, the vivid contrasts were just breathtaking. And I found myself saying over and over again over the last few weeks since we've gotten some moisture and things have started to turn green and sprout. I think California may rival Colorado is the most beautiful place on God's earth. And I would say this, California has a leg up on Colorado because you can't see the ocean and snow-capped mountains in the same landscape in Colorado the same way you can in California. Isaiah's imagery here then is compelling because of the emotions that it evokes in us. Snow... There is the rain and the snow. Snow tends to have a calming and peaceful effect on people. How many songs have been written about snow? You know, Christmas songs, Christmas carols. Might be difficult to define, but there's something about snow that evokes peace. Debbie, can you put up that photo that I plugged in there? This is a picture my dad took in 2005. That's Summit Lake Community Church where I grew up. Look at all that snow. Isn't that just, all your worries, all the things that you might be thinking about that are bugging you, you look at that and you go, wow. <laughs> that is peaceful. I love that picture. That was my dad's cover photo on Facebook for like 13 years. What a great photo. Snow evokes emotions of peace. We'll get back to the peace a little bit later. Likewise, as much as snow might be connected with peace, rain is connected with joy. For agrarian Israel in Isaiah's day, rain meant healthy crops and a good harvest, which is, of course, a joyful occasion. As Californians who are in a perpetual drought, we understand equally the joy that rain brings. But Isaiah is not primarily concerned with rain and snow in and of themselves. Isaiah is concerned with what the rain and the snow do. Isaiah wants to draw our attention to the effect that rain and snow have on the land. He says specifically there in verse 10 that they come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and giving seed to the sower, and bread to the eaters. You can uh, observe a couple of things that rain and snow do when they come down from heaven and come on the earth. They water the earth, they make it bare, they make it sprout, they give it seed, and they give bread. 
They, do, they fall from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth. For you science nerds in the room, note that even Isaiah, the prophet, has a basic grasp of the hydrologic cycle. Rain and snow falls from the heavens in condensation and precipitation, and they return there by evaporation to begin the cycle over again. And once the rain and snow water the earth, what do they do? They make it bare and sprout. I've got another photo in there. Debbie, that I have to have pulled up here. That's Griffith Park, like a few minutes away over by Glendale. This photo was taken last week. That's what it means to bear and sprout right here in Los Angeles. I mean, I, I, I found that photo online, and I was like, I've never seen a shade of green look quite like that in the clouds in the sky you see downtown there in the background it rained in los angeles the ground sprouted and bore fruit what is the final outcome of bearing and sprouting it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater the ultimate work of rain and snow is that it would satisfy the land and satisfy the inhabitants of the land so we've got this picture fairly well painted in our minds now of rain and snow and what the rain and the snow do. This imagery has biblical significance for Isaiah. He, as he often does, uses this imagery in conjunction with other biblical writers. The imagery of rain and snow falling upon the earth serves as a picture throughout the Bible of the blessings that God pours out on his people in two ways. First, a general way. This is seen in Ezekiel 34, 25 through 27, where God says this, I will cut a covenant of peace with them and cause harmful beasts to cease from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and all the places around my hill a blessing. And listen to this from Ezekiel. And I will cause showers to come down in their season, and they will be showers of blessing. Ezekiel continues. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit. The earth will yield its produce, and they will be secure in their land then they will know that I am Yahweh when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Ezekiel demonstrates to us in chapter 34 the connection between the imagery of rain and snow, the covenant of peace that God will cut with his people, the new Exodus themes that run throughout the Bible, and the theme of vineyard and vine producing strong branches which yield much fruit. The showers of blessing are showers of peace and rest and freedom from slavery resulting in the trees of the earth, God's people, yielding their produce. That's the first and more general way that the Bible uses this imagery of rain and snow to speak of God's blessing upon the earth. There's a second way. More specifically, it comes from Deuteronomy 32 verses 1 through 4. This is the song of Moses. And Moses says this, give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Hear that for a minute. The things that Moses speaks, the words that come out of his mouth, he equates in verse 1 to verse 2. Let what I have learned drop 
as the rain. My speech distill as the dew, as droplets on the fresh grass and as showers on the herb. For I, hear this, proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Moses draws a one-to-one equivalence here between the words that he speaks as the prophet of God and the rain that falls on the fresh grass and the showers that water the herb. In other words, Moses perceives the words that he is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as being like rain and accomplishing in a spiritual sense that which rain accomplishes. For Moses... The word is rain. And as it so often is, as for Moses, so also for Isaiah. Isaiah and Moses speak in unison, rain and snow and the work they accomplish on the earth, paint a clear picture and serve as a beautiful reminder of God's word and the work that it accomplishes on earth. And this leads us to verse 11. The doctrine of efficacy. Isaiah says this, So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Look at the beginning of verse 11 there. So will. What is Isaiah doing? He's tying this illustration in verse 11 to the teaching in, or excuse me, the the imagery in verse 10 to the teaching in verse 11. Like a great preacher, Isaiah gives the compelling illustration and then uses the illustration to teach the doctrine. As the rain, so the word. What the rain does for the earth in a physical sense, the word does for the earth in a spiritual sense. As the rain comes down on the earth and causes it to bear and sprout, so also the word comes down on the earth and causes it to bear and sprout in a spiritual sense. Now this has been part of God's method of working in the world from the very beginning. In Genesis 1 alone, we read of God saying or speaking 11 times. From the very beginning, the way that God works in the world is by speaking words out of his mouth. What does he say? Let there be light and there was light. It's not God just speaking and saying, let there be light and hoping something happens. He says, let there be light and all of matter bends to his word specifically. What's the result of the word that goes forth from God's mouth in Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Do you hear the echoes between Isaiah 55 and Genesis 1? What God has done in the creation narrative by 
speaking forth his word and it descends on the earth and causes things to sprout and grow and bear fruit. He continues to do the same throughout history. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. From the very beginning, God has demonstrated how he will accomplish his will in the world. It is through his word. The Apostle John then helps us see how this theme is escalated in Christ. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. As the rain carries within itself the power to bring life out of the barren landscape, so also the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, carries within himself the power to bring life out of the barren landscape. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as the rain comes to the earth, so the incarnate word comes to the earth. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Just as the rain comes to the earth and causes it to sprout and bear fruit, so also the incarnate word comes to the earth and causes it to sprout and bear fruit. Isaiah, therefore, in verse 11, looks backward to the life-giving and creative power of the Word of God in the creation and forward to the life-giving and creative power of the Word of God in the incarnation, declaring with confidence that God's Word works. How does Isaiah define this work, this efficacy, three ways from verse 11? One, it will not return empty Two, it will accomplish the good pleasure of Yahweh. Three, it will succeed in the matter for which Yahweh sent it. This is Isaiah then, this prophet poet, speaking in parallel, using a poem to give us a clear picture of the efficacy and the power of the word. In the context, therefore, of the prior verses here in Isaiah 55, we affirm that what the Word intends to accomplish is salvation. The free gift of grace, the mercy and compassion that are offered to the world in verses 1 through 9 are offered to the world by means of the power of the Word. Listen to the words of Joel Beakey as he defines this power of the word. 
The word of God is also effectual by the Spirit's power for salvation. The Holy Spirit is not only the Spirit of conviction, but the Spirit of life who sets sinners free in Christ Jesus. The Lord says in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but, shall it, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. We have here, this is still Joel Beakey, an analogy and an explanation. The analogy of rain and snow communicates the gift of fruitful life from heaven, the work of God's spirit to give life to a spiritually barren world. The explanation is that God's word cannot fail to be profitable and therefore cannot return empty-handed. On the contrary, the word will succeed to accomplish that which I please. In Isaiah 55, that purpose is to call sinners to faith, repentance, and eternal joy. Someone might object that the word cannot fully accomplish God's will since many who hear it reject it. However, Isaiah's prophecy written reveals that this too is God's will. The word will not fail to save those whom God wills to save. Isaiah therefore looks backward to the life that was created by the word, accomplished by the word in creation so that he might look forward to what the word will do when it becomes flesh. Was Isaiah's hope fulfilled? Did the word accomplish that for which God sent it? Let's let the incarnate word speak for himself. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You hear the echoes of Isaiah 55 and the words of Christ. What, where does the rain come from? In Isaiah 55, verse 10, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven, where does Jesus himself say that he has come down from? Heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which pleases me. Continuing in John 6, 39, now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I will raise them up on the last day. The incarnate word which proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh on high will not return empty, will certainly accomplish his good pleasure, and will certainly succeed in the matter for which he was sent. While Isaiah might be subtle, Jesus is explicit. The incarnate word will fulfill that eternal covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis, that eternal treaty of salvation between father and son, between mouth and word, will be accomplished. All those that the father intended to give the son, that he might save them and redeem them, every single one will make it safely home. Not one of them will be lost. That is the will of God the father as he sends his word into the world. Now, 
It is one thing for Jesus to say this in his earthly ministry. This is John 6. This is early on. One thing to say it. Quite another to do it. The question then, knowing that Isaiah has said the word will be successful, the word will accomplish what God has intended it to accomplish. The question is, did Jesus accomplish what God intended him to accomplish? Let's look at the text. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. The incarnate words, human nature, could not stop him when he was in agony, sweating drops of blood. And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Peter could not stop the incarnate word when he drew his sword and began to fight for his master. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate could not stop him when he declared him not guilty and not worthy of crucifixion. And when they led him away, they took hold of a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and they placed upon him the cross to carry behind Jesus. The weakness of the incarnate words, human body could not stop him from accomplishing the will of his father. And so as the incarnate word hung upon the cross, blood and water falling to the earth like rain and like snow, the incarnate word did not return void. The incarnate word accomplished God's good pleasure. The incarnate word succeeded in the matter for which Yahweh sent him. It is finished. The incarnate word has succeeded. But just as the incarnate word accomplishes God's purpose for him, so also the written word left to us by the incarnate word also accomplishes God's purpose purpose listen to what jesus prayed for his disciples john 17 as you sent me into the world i also send them into the world the father has sent the son into the world on an unstoppable unfailable mission so also the son sends his people on an unstoppable mission a mission to take the word to the ends of the earth and just as the incarnate word accomplished salvation, so also the written word accomplishes that same salvation. Wherever it is preached rightly and boldly. 
Take a couple moments here and look around. Look at all these people that are gathered in this room. All these people are living, breathing, walking evidence that this word works. Look in the mirror. Your own salvation, your own faith, however feeble, however frail, is evidence that this word works. Why then would we try to replace the word with something lesser? Why would we try to replace the preaching of the word with the preaching of the headlines? Why would we replace the reading of the word with scrolling on social media? Why would we replace the singing of the word with feel-good pop songs? The word works. So why would we try to fill seats with lights and lasers and with smoke and sound effects, with personalities and programs? The word works. This word will fill seats. This word will save sinners. This word will change lives. This word will bring us safely home to glory. The word works. So how do we respond? The joy of efficacy. Verse 12, upon Isaiah's declaration that the word works, he now urges us to respond appropriately. Again, grounded in the creation narrative. As God's word accomplished God's work in the creation, when word and work were done, God's response was twofold. It is good, I will rest. It is good being a declaration of his joy and gladness and satisfaction in what he had done. And I will rest a declaration that as the word has accomplished its work, now is a time for peace. You will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. What's compelling here for Isaiah is that the response of joy and peace to the work of the word is not only a response for people, but it is a response for the whole creation. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The work of the incarnate word and the work of the written word yield a creation-wide response. And that response is joy and gladness and peace and rest. But as we square this text away with the reality of our own lives, we are confronted with a problem. The world is not full of joy and gladness and peace and rest. Even as Christians, we battle against depression and sadness and anxiety and turmoil in our own hearts. How much more then is our world who does not know Christ beset with these same struggles? So how does Isaiah's declaration of joy and gladness and peace and rest make its way into our lives? 
I believe the key lies in what some pastors and teachers have called the tension between the already and the not yet. To borrow a phrase from John Stott, as Christians, we live between two worlds. To borrow imagery from John Bunyan, as Christians, we have left the city of destruction. We are on the road toward the celestial city. But we are not there yet. We have not yet crossed that great, broad, stormy river of death through the golden gates of the celestial city. We still travel through the slough of despond. We still travel through the valley of the shadow of death. We still travel through vanity fair. We still face giant despair and are often imprisoned in doubting castle. But nevertheless, the joy and gladness and peace and rest are still ours. Ours because by faith we have received Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And although you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of great glory. Paul, Peter, both understood the joy and the peace that we receive even now as we walk the path from suffering to glory. Our joy and our peace are not completely full now, but nevertheless they are true joy and true peace. The work of the Word has accomplished this. Because of what the Word has done, both incarnate and written, we go out with joy and are led forth with peace in our spirits. Now it's just our bodies that are waiting for the same joy and peace in the new creation and in the resurrection. And as we wait for that new resurrection body, so also all of creation waits for that same new creation. This is why Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen to this. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation suffers and groans the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit even we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly await it. The word of God falling to the earth like rain, sets us free from the penalty and power of sin now. And the hope of Paul and of Isaiah and of the whole earth is that the same word will once again fall to the earth and set the whole creation free, this time from the presence of sin. Then, 
our joy will be made full and our gladness will be made complete and our peace will surpass understanding and our rest will be made eternal. And that then is the reversal of efficacy which leads us to verse 13. The word works. And the response of all creation is joy and gladness and peace and rest both now and into eternity. In verse 13, then, Isaiah tells us exactly what the word will do in an eternal sense. The work of the word is ultimately a work of reversal. How so? Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be to Yahweh for his renown, for an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. What is going on in verse 13? If you want to understand it fully, we've got to go back to Genesis. Chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Listen carefully. Look at verse 13 and listen to what I'm about to say from Genesis. Both thorns and nettles, it will grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. The curse brought up thorns and nettles, thorn bushes and thistles. The word replaces those with cypress and myrtle. Adam's fall brought death and destruction to the world and its inhabitants. The word's victory brings life and peace to the same. What does the word do in an eternal sense? It reverses the curse. Like we just sang a few minutes ago. Dying, he reversed the curse. That's still happening until that final day when even all of creation has its curse reversed. Thorns and thistles are gone and replaced by cypress and myrtle. The word of God has curse-reversing power. And it's not just theoretical, it's not just future, it's real, it's practical, it's now. The word of God has curse-reversing power in your own heart. Raise your hand if you've been in some way affected by Adam's fall and Adam's sin. Every hand in the room better be up. All of us have been affected by Adam's fall, Adam's sin, Adam's curse. And what Christ has done is he has reversed it. In Adam there is curse for all. In Christ there is blessing for all. Come to the table, eat and drink freely. If you have no money, fine. If you have plenty of money, fine. Everyone is welcome at Christ's table. And then at the end of verse 13, the reversal is intended as an eternal sign proclaiming the glory of God. Anything that God does, he does in the end to proclaim his own glory. And the beauty 
of that is that in the midst of God getting glory, we also get good out of that. And then, it's eternal. This curse reversal can never be unreversed. Once you have tasted of the free grace that is offered at the table of the incarnate word, you not only will never go back, you can never go back. The reversal of the curse is for all time. Take heart then. For those of you who have come to this table and have eaten and drank deeply of the free grace that is offered at the table of God in Christ. Keep feasting. If you've never tasted of it, now is the time. The word has gone out. Let it not return void this morning in your own heart and in your own mind. So what ought we to do now as we exit these doors? Five things. One, know that the word works. Two, believe that the word works. Three, understand that just as the Father sent the Son into the world as the Word, so the Son sends us into the world with the Word. We ought to take that commission seriously. It's number three, number four. Proclaim the Word to your friends and family, your neighbors and your co-workers, in season and out of season believing and trusting and knowing that as sure as the rain and snow fall upon the earth and yield fruit, so also the word that proceeds from God's mouth through your mouth will fall upon the earth and bear fruit. The word of God works. It worked in creation. It worked at the cross. It will work into eternity and it works in our lives now so number five go out with joy and be led forth with peace knowing that this word is the spring where waters flow to quench our heat of sin it is the tree where truth doth grow to lead our lives therein here is the judge that stints the strife when men's devices fail. Here is the bread that feeds our life that death cannot assail. The tidings of salvation, dear, come to our ears from hence. The fortress of our faith is here and shield of our defense. Then be not like the hog that hath a pearl at his desire and take more pleasure in the trough and wallowing in the mire. Read not this book in any case, but with a single eye. Read not but first desire grace to understand thereby. Pray still in faith with this respect to bear fruit therein, that knowledge may bring this effect to mortify thy sin. Then happy thou in all thy life, whatso to thee befalls, 
Yet double happy shalt thou be when God by death thee calls.